Amid the vivid memories of my childhood, one image stands out. The proud smile on my brother's face as he came home with his first Boy Scouts uniform. I remember the excitement in his eyes, the enthusiasm in his voice, and the values he carried woven into that iconic attire. The ideals of integrity, courage, and leadership that the Boy Scouts instilled in my brother reflect more than a mere creed. They mirror the foundations of greatness that drive those who dare to transform their world. Medicine, like scouting, involves complexities, uncertainties, and a perpetual quest for improvement. This journey isn't about wearing a uniform. It's about recognizing the imperfections in our system and daring to challenge them. Welcome to Digital Health Disruptors by Charm Health, empowering innovative clinicians on the digital health frontier. On this podcast, we explore the trials and triumphs of pioneers at the intersection of technology and healthcare. I'm your host, Ranjani Rangan. My guest today is Dr. Art Wallace, a former Boy Scout. His early life experiences played a pivotal role in shaping his career path. My mom developed a glioblastoma multiforme when I was nine. No one quite knew what it was, mm. and she got better. And then about six months later, I went up to say, hey, um, I'd like to go see the Pink Panther. And she went, Ooh, and collapsed on the floor with a seizure. And I thought, how do I not have other people have this experience? Dr. Wallace is the professor and vice chair of anesthesiology and perioperative care at the University of California, San Francisco, and the chief of anesthesia service at the Veterans Affairs Medical Center in San Francisco. Dr. Wallace, welcome to the Digital Health Disruptors. I am really excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk today. Yeah, wonderful. So you are not only a mentor, physician, and entrepreneur, but also a dedicated professor with a lot of eclectic hobbies, I may add. And you are also shaping the future of medicine. Tell us a little bit about your latest innovation. Well, I've been developing both drugs, devices, surgical operations, and software for many, many decades. And the latest thing we're working on is an effort to monitor all patients in the hospital. At the current time, about half of patients are monitored in the hospital. It's getting to be a little bit more, but there's a large number of people who aren't monitored. They're the younger people, the healthier people. And the problem with that is that it's a lot of work to monitor people. You have to put sensors on people and put wires and they get trapped in the bed and patients don't particularly care for being wired to the bed. Nurses have to go in and put them back on again. And so what we've decided to do is say, let's monitor every patient. And the reason is because I'm kind of tired of going to codes and I'm tired of having events in the hospital. The first time I saw this was when I was a resident and I went to a code at 3 a.m. was a 12-year-old girl who had had some oral surgery, and someone said, oh, she'll be more comfortable if she spends a night in the hospital. And at 2 a.m., a nurse didn't want to wake the child, went in the room, gave her a shot of morphine, and at 3 a.m., she was found dead. And this devastated everyone. It devastated the team, the family, destroyed people's lives. And I've thought, well, how could we monitor everybody? 
No one's going to put electric monitors on a 12-year-old. They're not going to tolerate it. They'll get out of bed. But these young, healthy people that you give opiates to can stop breathing. And so what we've done is created a new platform for monitoring where we use machine vision to find the patient in the room, track them in the room. And then our first thing we did was, are they breathing? And you could track the person around the room, make sure they're breathing. And then we worked on heart rate, so it's their heart beating. And after that, we started working on a number of parameters and worked on pulse oximetry, mood, pain, perfusion, blood pressure, out-of-bed alarms, a number of different parameters. Once you have a camera in the room, you can do a lot of stuff to make sure people are okay. And that's what we're doing. Dr. Wallace is at the forefront of a groundbreaking innovation. His invention? Adapir. Adapir introduces a non-contact, remote patient monitoring camera system that harnesses the power of machine vision and artificial intelligence to track crucial vital signs. So today in a typical hospital room, they use sticky pads or sensors, right? And Adapir uses a video camera that's mounted on the wall. Tell me about this technology, Dr. Walls. I think people are kind of a little uncomfortable at having a microwave oven in their hospital room running all the time. You can also do this with a camera, and the camera is less problematic. What we do is we have a camera array with a red, green, blue camera, and that looks at visible light. And then we have an infrared camera for seeing in the dark. And the infrared camera can see through the clothes, see through things, and, and pick up signals through clothing and blankets and stuff. And then we have a depth camera. And the depth camera is very interesting. What it's doing is it projects structured light out into the room. And then we look at it with the infrared camera, and you can see where the spots are that were projected out into the room. And you can tell the depth. And the depth is pretty accurate. It's a couple of millimeters. And you can see chest wall motion. You can see the person moving around. You can find people in the room easily. And then we have a microphone array to track people and you can tell where people are in the room and who's talking and we can, if someone's not doing well, you can say, hey, Mr. Johnson, how are you doing? And you can tell that it's the patient talking, not somebody else in the room. And so that's what we're doing. Is it changing the patient experience, Dr. Wells? How are the doctors responding? I would say there's a couple different responses. Many people are like, wow, we need this now. There's a kind of, wow, what a cool thing. When you look at medical monitoring, a lot of it was developed in the 60s and 70s, some of it up to 1980. It looks new now because there's blinky lights and flat screens and touch panels, but it's the same basic thing. Sticky pad on patient with wire. And oh my, oh, we maybe have a you know, Bluetooth connection so you don't have to have a cable. But it's not fundamentally different. What we're doing is fundamentally different. We have a camera, there's nothing on the patient. We have artificial intelligence and machine vision looking at the camera, picking out the signals and monitoring the patient. And it lets you do a lot of things that would be kind of hard. Like if I came to you and said, hey, I want to see what your mood is and your pain score in the room. Right. Where do you stick the sticky pad? With machine vision, you can do that. There are algorithms that do it. It, it can pump out the signal. And that is a transformative technology. And so we're making software as a service for a medical monitor, which is a new way to do it. In the quiet confines of a hospital room, a sense of isolation often can envelope patients. 
they may express feelings of neglect, believing that nobody has visited them or attended to their needs. You know, they're in a room, they're kind of lonely, and they'll say like, oh, you know, no one's come to see me. And you realize the doctor came to see them, but they were asleep or something. Or they'll say like, oh, I was in pain for an hour, no one came to me to help me. That is sad and it's a problem. Instances of patients enduring pain without assistance add to the poignancy of the situation, shedding light on a pervasive issue. But Dr. Wallace's innovation not only bridges the physical gap between patients, but also the emotional gap between trust and uncertainty. Just as Zoom meetings have transformed everything in the last three years, this mm -hmm. is going to let the patient communicate with their nurse. There are going to be objective data coming back that tells the nurse how the patient's doing. There's not going to be any mystery of what's going on. If the patient wants to call their family, they can have a video call to their family right off the bat. With COVID, we had people who were having to say goodbye without being able to see their loved one. This is going to transform it. According to Dr. Wallace, this transformation nurtures seamless communication among patients, nurses, and doctors. This collaboration is fortified by the support of objective data and the remarkable capabilities of artificial intelligence-driven machine vision technology. However, there's a practical concern about the use of cameras and sensors in patient rooms, such as, will my conversations with the doctors and nurses be recorded? Or, what if I'm not wearing clothes and I need privacy? Dr. Wallace addresses this by highlighting that hospitals already employ various devices for security and property control, and his innovation seeks to build upon this existing technological infrastructure. People are like, oh, do you mind having a camera in the room? And I always say to them, the room already has four cameras for security. They're not providing the patient anything special. They're just for security. The other one I, I say to people is, What's that sensor on the ceiling up there in your hospital room? Oh, I don't know. Well, there are four of them. What are those? Oh, that's the RF signal to pick out where the pump is. It's the property control system. So hospitals have all these sensors in the room for property control, but they don't know that the patient is doing okay. I mean, that's a problem. That's an interesting way to describe it. Yeah, I guess what we're creating here is like an intelligent room. Right. It's a smart room. It's like, let's make the room smarter. Let's not roll a little thing in the room, stick a cuff around your arm, pump up, you know, squish your arm, put a little thing on your finger, and then run away for four hours. Let's monitor the person continuously. Now, the other thing that you find, and the first thing that people say is, hey, he suddenly had a problem. And it's always like, he suddenly had a problem. And when you look at the computerized records, you realize... No, this person was kind of deteriorating over a number of hours, sometimes up to 12 hours, and people didn't quite recognize what was going on, and then boom, they have a problem. In the conventional setting, when a patient's health deteriorates, it is typically labeled as a sudden event, appearing to emerge unexpectedly. However, here lies the nuance. Such declines are seldom truly sudden. Patients frequently display subtle signs of worsening conditions for hours before a critical episode occurs. Dr. Wallace elaborates that this process resembles a silent countdown, a ticking clock often overlooked by healthcare providers. A smart room transcends the conventional approach of intermittent check-ins and periodic measurements. It represents a groundbreaking concept aimed at transforming patient care into a continuous and proactive endeavor.
And I'm going to say, well, I, call me if the heart rate goes over 120. Well, the person's heart rate's 119. Call me if the blood pressure is below 90. Well, it's 91. And so there's clearly something going wrong with the patient, but because each individual parameter isn't out of whack, nothing happens. And no one has synthesized that data to say, well, four or five of the parameters are out of whack, we should do something. And so we have composite parameters that say, hey, this person has multiple problems out of whack. Let's let's do something. And people want to provide really good care and people try to give really good care. But if you don't give somebody a way to see the data, they don't get it and they don't see that problem. There's no blinking red light that says warning this set of hemodynamics is associated with the doubling of your chance of having a disaster. We're giving them the blinking red light. I was looking at your tagline, this vigilance through AI and vigilance when it comes to being like a human or a nurse is can be quite burdensome. But then on the positive note, when you're talking about technology, it is something where you're getting 24-7 monitoring. What are the costs for something like this for maybe um, a nursing home to have it? Or Technology is not that expensive. The cameras are 500 to to $1,000 for camera. The computers are ordinary PC computers with a GPU in them, a couple thousand bucks. The software costs something. There are many, many medical device companies that are like hardware, hardware, hardware. We're a software company, and what we're going to do is have a, a subscription where people are paid for by the bed, and if they have a subscription, then they get next year's upgrade. And our plan, we have a patent portfolio, and we're going to bring out a new parameter probably every year, maybe a couple every year, and the, if you have a subscription, you'll get to keep upgrading. Now... The other thing that's kind of strange about us is I've worked on a lot of medical devices where someone said, I'm going to measure one thing. There are people now who come out and say, I'm going to give you pain as a single parameter. Adapir is going to give you 30 parameters. And we're going to have, it's a platform. And so the cost per parameter, because it's software, is lower to develop. And that's something that's unique about us. It's once you have this technology, you can add a new parameter. This year, we're working on blood pressure. Next year, we're working on the next one. Clearly, you know, you have a product that is well differentiated. Do you see any challenges in bring this to the market? What are your next steps? Yes, there are always challenges. And what I've learned about science and device development and all these things is paying for it is the hardest part. And paying for it continuously is the hardest part. We're in the process of raising capital, but raising capital is hard. Now, we're in a different place in the medical device development cycle. What we did was we spent 10 years getting this all to work, and we have 10 parameters that we know how to monitor, and we've done more than 120 patients' clinical trial. And so we're way further along in the development cycle than a normal company that's going out to raise capital. We're much further along in the development cycle. And our plan, right now we're doing trials this summer for our FDA 510K application. It's expensive and complicated, and it would be easier if somebody wanted to invest. We went to the American Society of Anesthesia 
in 2019, and we were in the Shark Tank for the Foundation for Education and Research, and we won first place. And I thought, wow, that's going to be great. All set. Someone's going to help pay for this. And a bunch of device companies that you've heard about came over to look at us. Mm -hmm. You know, GE, Massimo, Nelcor, all these things. And we're like, wow. Big names. Help help us, right? And they're like, oh, we don't do that. We wait until you've taken all of the risk and done all the development work and are on the market and we can establish that there's a market and then we buy you. And you say to them, well, how does that work? Oh, well, it's much better for us. And that de-risks it for the big company. That's why there's no new medical devices really in this thing because they want to de-risk everything and then we went back in 2021 to asa and we won the shark tank again and i thought well maybe this will change the world but no the world is the same people want other people to take all the risk in device development and so you know i'm doing it basically it's painful but we're doing it the picture is familiar A dedicated innovator driven by a passion to make a difference embarks on a journey that spans a decade of refining a revolutionary medical device. They pour years of tireless effort into refining their creation, meticulously testing every parameter and conducting countless clinical trials. The narrative takes an unexpected twist as they find themselves in the spotlight, winning a Kool-Aids and recognition from respected institutions. Yet, even with their achievements, they encounter a seemingly unyielding wall, a wall built by established companies that are hesitant to invest until the venture is de-risked to their satisfaction. This is where the promise of transformation battles the practicalities of funding and industry norms. One thing is for sure, it takes an unyielding spirit to reshape healthcare. I have a lot of practice taking a thing all the way through to the end and getting it out there, which a lot of people don't have. I'm persistent. <laughs> it's what they call a good skill. <laughs> it's a good skill. Some, Persistence. Some people view is... it as like, like you haven't figured out how to give up, and the answer is no, I'm just persistent. You know? <laughs> it's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> yeah. Every innovator has an interesting life story or anecdote that shaped their life, and Dr. Wallace is no exception. His journey is rooted in the vibrant landscape of Berkeley, California. Their family home was a hub of exploration and innovation. However, his journey took a significant turn when his mother was faced with a brain tumor located in the frontal lobe. The medical professionals at the time struggled to provide a clear diagnosis, leaving her condition surrounded by uncertainty. Despite some improvement, her health eventually took a downturn. This was first of two experiences exposing Dr. Wallace to the limitations of medical knowledge and technology. My mom developed a glioblastoma multiforme when I was nine and died when I was 11. The neurologist didn't know what it was. They were like, was she drugged with LSD or was she, because this was the 60s at Berkeley. It was all, oh, Mm -hmm. maybe she got drugged. Maybe it's encephalitis. No one quite knew what it Mm -hmm. was. And she got better and then about Six months later, I went up to say, hey, um, I'd like to go see the Pink Panther. And she went, ooh, and collapsed on the floor with a seizure. The survival from these tumors has not improved dramatically in the last 50 years, despite a lot of work. And at that point, 
I learned a lot about medicine and I, and I thought, how do I not have other people have this experience? Like this is not a positive experience. And so when I got to college, I wanted to be a doctor. And then when I graduated from college, I applied for MD, PhD, and they were like, you're perfect, we'll take you. So I went to Johns Hopkins and I worked in biomedical engineering for a guy named Art Shukas. And then when I was a second year medical student, I was practicing the review of systems, which is a thing that doctors do where you ask a bunch of questions, you know, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, weight loss. And I was practicing with my girlfriend because it's the long list of 200, 300 questions. And I was just practicing saying the words. And she said, I've got that. Something like, tells me this doesn't sound very good. No, you're supposed to have nothing on the list. And she said, <laughs> well, I've got these four things. She said, what does that mean? And I'm like, I don't know. I'll go ask the professor. So I trotted in to ask the clinical skills professor, what does this mean? And he goes, oh, that's bad. Send her to the doctor. His girlfriend's health took a dramatic turn when after several failed attempts, she was diagnosed with cancer. Dr. Wallace's trust in the medical field was challenged. And he realized that though medicine had evolved over the years, it was far from perfect. So I sent her off to the doctor. And they decided she had medical student disease and they didn't examine her. They had the naive view that they knew what they were doing. And what you realize in medicine, that medicine is, I don't know, 130, 140 years old. That if you look at medicine during the Civil War, nothing was good for anybody. It got better over time and got better and slowly got better, but it isn't perfect. Well, biology is really complicated and there's a lot that we don't know. And there's a lot of things that are called idiopathic, which is a $12 word for I don't know. And so you, when you go to medical school, you, you learn we're not perfect at this. And you learn, please examine the patient. You learn things like listen to the patient. Well, in the situation of my girlfriend, they didn't listen to the patient, they didn't examine the patient. Why would you listen to the patient and, and then examine them? Like it's a little old fashioned. We got put in the control room. And I had to figure out, is this a good idea? I was supposed to be the one to figure that out. And I called up the oncologist and said, is this a good thing? And he says, we don't know. And I said, well, does this work? When the oncologist confessed a troubling truth, it was both unexpected and baffling. And he said, I don't know. I don't know? I don't know. This revelation rattled Dr. Wallace. How could a drug that's been on the market for three decades, a staple in treatment, remain surrounded by such ambiguity? I said, well, why do you give it to the person? And he said, it makes the patient think we're doing something. And then he said, don't worry, she'll be dead by Christmas. Now, yeah, that's surprising. not good bedside manner. I would recommend that not as good side bedside manner. In this moment, the complexities of medical decision-making and the gaps in knowledge become far too clear, propelling Dr. Wallace on a journey to seek change and redefine the boundaries of how he practices medicine. I've spent for the next 40 years, figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And it's, you could do that. I mean, I do it with epidemiology. I do it with clinical trials. I do it with testing things. But that 
one sentence told me I'm not going to be that kind of doctor. I think what I hear from you is that here you have this extraordinarily negative experience. And from this, so challenging, painful, yes, all of the above. But yet you take this experience and you grow from it and you literally pivot. You change your mindset about how you want to do things. You know, as an MD, PhD, you're thinking that, wait a minute, I can change this. I can do things differently. I can do things better. That's what I find fascinating here. I love what I do. You know, I go to work and I figure out how to make people happy. And I figure out how to improve the care we provide. And working in the VA is a phenomenal experience because we have the best computer system in the world. It is easy to use and you can do large-scale epidemiology easily. And We've got 30 million patients in the database. I've got 8 million people we can look at. Find out the things that are not helping patients. Find out what works. Find out what doesn't work. And we can implement policies to improve care. I also think it's really important to not be satisfied with the status quo. Like, if you come in and go, I should suffer. Nothing's going to get better. My life sucks. Then you're not going to try to solve the problem. If you come in and go, hey, that was terrible, how do I not do that again? Dr. Wallace acknowledges that it took him a considerable amount of time to feel at ease with advocating for change in established medical procedures. This transition was particularly challenging for someone rooted in the scientific mindset. And it took me a a long time to get comfortable with kind of going, hey, we know this works. Please do it. This is how you do it safely. That was a very weird thing for scientists, because the scientists, normally you come and you say, here's what I found. Here's this cool thing I found. And you don't try to sell anybody on changing their practice. You just show them the data, and hopefully they change their practice. Right. But if you don't help them change their practice... It's a little nudge. Right. You need to create the protocol. Yeah. 40 years ago, I did a study where I showed that if you have surgery, you should have an antibiotic beforehand. I wrote a paper... And I thought that was all I needed to do, and it had absolutely no effect on medicine. And 40 years later, we're still talking about it. And he goes, you went out and told people to change their behavior. A, that takes a lot of guts, but B, that was the right thing to do. Through his own experience, Dr. Wallace recognizes the necessity of a structured approach to guide these changes, creating systems that may include education, Protocols and ongoing monitoring, he says, are needed to ensure that the desired changes actually happen. When you look at medical intervention, if you have a level one standard of care, which says, if you don't do this, it's malpractice, it takes on average 17 years for the average doctor to adopt it. Now, the career lifespan of a doctor is about 35 years, so you haven't actually changed anyone's behavior You just replaced half the doctors with new doctors. That's terrible. So we need these systems that test things, make sure they're safe and effective, get them out there, change the practice, get people to do it, and then check to make sure it worked. Because you could be wrong. You could definitely be wrong. Growing up in the East Bay, California, 
Dr. Wallace used to attend nighttime lectures about science that would greatly inspire him. He wanted to create this opportunity for youngsters. Approximately 17 years ago, he initiated an inspiring program where individuals are invited to attend evening lectures showcasing the diverse opportunities in fields like science, medicine, engineering, physics, and astronomy. Here, he serves as a mentor. You can have a job in science, you can have a job in medicine, you can do engineering, you can do physics, you can do astronomy, all those things, which is, I think, transformative for them because they go, oh, people actually do this. And yeah. then we've had a number of them do internships with us. I've had a couple of them might come to my lab and work in my lab. And then we have students come in the lab this summer, and some of them are learning how to do clinical studies. How do you think like a scientist? How do you think like an engineer? How do you invent? And also, you've got to tell people it's okay to do this. I've been thinking about how to solve this problem for 20 years. And then, oh, now I know how to solve it. It's a long-term thing, and you have to kind of keep your eyes open and think about it and figure out how to do it. So are there values that you're trying to pass on to some of these students? Is it the creativity mindset? I don't know. Uh, maybe I, you've I, already answered this, but do yeah. I gotta, do I teach them values? I maybe more by modeling, I would think. Model them, servant leadership, Boy Scouts, trustworthy, brave, honest, and all that, the 12 things of Boy Scouts. Were you a Boy Scout? Of course I was a Boy Scout. Yeah, you seem like you were. <laughs> and my kids are both Eagle Scouts, and, you know, we did a lot of Boy Scouts. You're trying to teach people to think about the future, plan about stuff, be prepared. The Boy Scout motto, be prepared, reflects the importance of planning for the future and being equipped to face challenges head on. Moreover, his emphasis on not tolerating mediocrity and striving to improve aligns seamlessly with the Scouts' ethos of making the world a better place. And some of these things, you know, you've got to look at the thing slightly differently or quantitatively or whatever it is and figure out what you want to fix. And then, you know, eventually you come up with some solution on how to fix it and then figure out how to pay for it. Well, you're a fascinating person to talk with, Thank Dr. You. Walls. In the show notes, I'll put your LinkedIn profile and your website in case folks want to talk with you. But it's been wonderful chatting with you, and I'm really glad you came to our conference last year. Well, and thank you so much for inviting me to talk. As we wrap up, Dr. Art Walls' journey serves as a masterclass in challenging the status quo, reminding us that adversity and questioning norms can lead to remarkable innovations. Whether you're in medicine, tech, or any field, remember to persist, embrace change, and keep in mind the importance of building well-organized frameworks such as education, protocols, and ongoing monitoring to guide the changes you wish to see. Personally, I'm deeply inspired by Dr. Wallace's commitment to mentoring the younger generation. It underscores the significance of passing the flame of knowledge to the next generation and being a torchbearer to inspire future innovators. Thank you for joining us. Keep challenging the norms, remaining passionate, and pursuing innovation. Your journey has the potential to ignite transformative change. Stay inspired and stay tuned for more stories of progress. Thank you for listening to Digital Health Disruptors presented by Charm Health. Make sure you're following the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating or review. 
find out how we empower tech-forward clinicians on the digital health frontier at charmhealth.com.